HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Explore Ithaca's waterfalls, orchards, and craft beverage scene. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about seaweed. (laughs) Don't ask me why. Well, I got a good reason why. The reason is, is that I have another show. I know. I'm sorry. I do. I do. I have a local show in Rhode Island, and uh, I interviewed a local sugar kelp farmer, and he was so fantastic that I'm bringing him to my other audience, which is all y'all. And uh, this farmer's name is Jonathan McGee. He's a sugar kelp farmer, and he is also one of the founders of the New England Sugar Kelp Cooperative. Um, so, Jonathan, tell you have another, you have other very interesting and appropriate background, which doesn't pertain necessarily to aquaculture, but which certainly helps you when it comes to publicizing your uh, product. So, didn't you come from like a marketing background or something like that? I sort of vaguely remember that from our previous conversation. Uh, yes. Hi. Good morning, Katie. Awesome to be here, and uh, and thank you for the intro. I hope I hope I'm as I'm as interesting as last time. Um, that could have just been one in a million. I doubt it. <laughs> so my background is uh, I work in the packaging industry. I've, I have a career in the packaging industry that's that's uh, close to three decades long now, and 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 that is primarily sales and marketing. It's an engineering to begin with. Wow, you didn't look that old, Jonathan. <laughs> I, uh, well, I eat seaweed. What can I say? <laughs> the food of the gods and goddesses, as we will discuss a future, a future part of this interview. So first of all, why don't you tell us about what is the New England Sugar? It's not even called the New England Sugar Kelp Cooperative. It's the... So close. It's actually called the Sugar Kelp Cooperative. Right. And you could be confusing it because our website is www.newenglandkelp.com. That is why I'm confused. Yes, that'll do it. That'll do it. So, um, so yeah, this is Sugar Cup Cooperative. We are um, we are based in Stonington, Connecticut, and what the cooperative does is it serves as a buyer uh, of sugar kelp from Southern New England kelp farms. Uh, also serves as a distributor for the product. 
and uh, both in both in um, in uh, non-process forms and process forms, uh, serves as a processor for the products, and also serves as a marketing entity uh, to sell all these products, and uh, and and most importantly, to grow the to grow the industry in general. Right. So. How did you get into the kelp farming business? I'm not even sure I remember that I asked you that before. What what prompted you to get into it? And then we'll talk about how it's grown and why it should be grown. You know, I it's really it's kind of funny, I think, because when I consider how much time and 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 energy and and passion I have toward all of this, the introduction was was me watching TV. Oh, so, well. <laughs> I guess that's one of those times where maybe TV can be beneficial, right? Uh, despite what we were told growing up. But yeah, so I I, I stumbled upon a sixty minutes story on sugar kelp farming in the Long Island Sound in Connecticut uh, with um, with Green Wave, uh, who is a a nonprofit entity um, uh, in Connecticut that is uh, that is a, a major contributor to uh, to you know the technological and um, and and other growths of the of the industry, and so I saw that story and and uh, became very excited right away. Right. So what did so how do you start? How do you start a kelp farm? Like how how do you start with a seed with clones? You have to get permits. I mean, it's kind of a process, right? Like it's easy once you get started, but the getting started part, like. That seems like <clears throat> the two biggest obstacles I would say to to starting a kelp farm. Uh, one, the regulatory uh, challenges or hurdles or requirements that you that you navigate, and uh, and then secondly, it's the costs and the the largest cost is a boat. So um, that was a barrier that that I had already cleared because I had a boat and oh, uh, a boat. Does it have to be like a big motor boat, like a 26 footer or, you know, <clears throat> or can it really, it be a rowboat? You know, it all depends on where the site is. It depends on, you know, on how large the, how large the farm is, how many people you'll have, you'll have on the boat. Um, my farm is about a half mile from shore. Uh, and, um, and, the, the water conditions are relatively mild I, I, in terms of in terms of uh, currents primarily and exposure to you know to really rough conditions although the exposure is still still there and I say relatively because there are you know there are cases where people will grow in in, in deep ocean water and 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 in those cases you'll often have much stronger currents and yeah you, know, and you a need a big more. boat for that right 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 and so and so for for me on my site the i actually do everything right now with a 20 foot center console fishing boat uh-huh. it's actually been working out really well it it's as i as i continue to scale it will um i'll have to i'll have to get a different boat uh, but that's been but that's been great so far and then, uh, and then, so, so, um, so the process, you know, 
to getting the all the permitting and everything is is in Connecticut it's about a roughly a year long process maybe a little less and uh it it it's several steps i don't even know how many steps it's a lot <laughs> um, and and the reason is that you end up engaging with any and every stakeholder that's involved and a stakeholder in this case is by my definition anybody who has an opinion on the matter all <laughs> right so it, in Connecticut, it actually works out pretty well because you reach out to the Department of Agriculture's Aquaculture Division, and they end up being your quarterback, so to speak, throughout the process. So you end up working with, with numerous other entities, Army Corps of Engineers, uh, Department of Environment and, and Energy Protection, uh, Department of Consumer Protection, um, local um, uh, shellfish entities, local municipalities, um, wow. all, all these things. And, and, but the department of agriculture, uh, helps guide you through all this, which, which works out really well. Yeah. Well, I saw when I was doing research for this show, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit since we're talking about regulatory issues. Um, that that was really a, a very significant uh, hurdle that the industry as a whole is facing. This was from your GreenWave, your pals at GreenWave, which is the, the tech assistance uh, nonprofit you mentioned uh, earlier. And that <clears throat> they, they are, I guess, trying to work with legislators to streamline some of those regulatory hurdles, it sounds like. Um, so it's, it's getting the permit is your, is the hardest thing, it sounds like. And then let me say that again. It sounds like, no, <laughs> Jesus. Like I said, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been inside a little too long this last few days. Um, <laughs> but then <laughs> the other stuff is like, you have to find the capital, the capital would be the boat investment, but then also the infrastructure on which you grow the kelp. Are there, uh, are there entities, USDA grants, uh, district grants that can help you with that. And then how do you find, like, I know with shell fishing, aquaculture it's it's they're very strict about the permitting is it a similar scenario for kelp farming uh so so they are very strict they are very strict so the shell fishing shellfish is is sort in a lot of ways the most important um uh crop or around here anyway to regulate and uh and and i'd say i'd imagine and, and i'd imagine that's universal because because how it's handled is so critical and, and where it's grown is, is critical. Equally critical, uh, yeah. Correct, and so in Connecticut, they, our, process, our regulatory standards mirror that of shellfish standards, shellfishing standards. So in Connecticut to grow sugar, and by the way, you, Connecticut won't, won't allow uh, sugar kelp to be, to be uh, used for human consumption in any other way than grown uh, than cultivated on long lines so you can't take wild stock uh, as an example right. well that, and, that makes sense otherwise there would be no more kelp because people would just rip off all the wild stock right it, it something like that yeah and that's a, it's a big problem sure uh, or it would be a big problem um since since it's all grown in unconditionally approved shellfish waters. So in Connecticut, we have different categories for, for the shellfish 
shellfish beds and shellfish areas and 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 they're conditionally approved and unconditionally approved and uh and conditionally approved means that they're they're usually open but if there are environmental factors that come into play and 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 the biggest one is if there's a ton of rain that comes down and you have a lot of a lot of um you know a lot of drain into the sound from you know a lot of stormwater drain off which typically means that sewage systems have overflown and you're getting a very high bacteria count which is why they close beaches to swimming and why they close shellfish beds to shellfishing so but it surprises me that kelp would also absorb some of those toxins and be and maintain them within their cell, cellular structure well as so as far as the um as far as maintaining them that that I don't know I I do know that I do know that um, as far as bacteria goes, you know, one of the requirements in Connecticut is that your farm uh, has to be has to be tested every year for bacteria, heavy metals, and, and a few other things before you're given you're given uh, your license to sell for the year. I understand. Well, I mean, and, the heavy metals make sense to me because they would draw that up through their roots, just like rice draws up arsenic, for instance. Yeah, you're exactly right. Heavy metals would is a big concern, and and as and and as far as um, bacteria, you know, and then storm runoff and all of that, um, the kelp farms are only in the in the unconditionally approved or the you know always open shellfish beds because they're in further out sites that won't be affected by by storm runoff. Okay. And so it's those sites that that we grow, uh, I'm sorry, maybe I've been inside too long too. Those are the sites we grow sugar kelp in, in the state of Connecticut. I see. So um, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, just sort of the nuts and bolts and then in the next, cause we're gonna take a little short break, like literally a minute. Um, and then we'll talk more about sort of like the whole processing infrastructure, all that stuff. So, so just to be clear, you, okay, say you've got your boat, you get your permit, you buy your seeds or your clones? Like, how do you plant kelp? I mean, let's get nitty gritty here, Jonathan. Like, I didn't get this. We didn't, we talked so, you know, wildly in one direction after another in the last iteration that I didn't really get the process. So I like to know the manufacturing process of anything. And this is just another product. So do you plant seeds in the in the ocean floor? And then you basically run like a clothesline, right? Or something like that. Yeah. So picture, picture a clothesline, like, you know, just a simple, you know, you know, simple old school backyard clothesline, two poles right. coming out of the, out of the ground, one string connecting them. Um, so imagine that in the water um, yeah. where your, your clothesline um, in this, and it's, so in this case, it's your grow line, your long line. Yeah. So the kelp is going to be about a meter below the surface of the water. And we utilize seed that is embedded on strings. We call it seed string. Uh-huh. Uh, and seed string is created in tanks. Um, there are certain, there there are a few hatcheries that that produce this. And for most everybody in southern in southern New England, it, it comes from Green Wave in Connecticut. And uh, and essentially, Green Wave is able to provide us with um, with spools of seed string 
um, that have, well, string that has seeds, about 200 linear feet per spool. How many plants does that represent? Like how many seeds can they put on 200 feet? Mm, that is a question I cannot answer. Okay, never mind then. Um, but I'd imagine they get as many on there as they can. <laughs> right. and, 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 you know, and and uh, and there's going to be a lot in the beginning that aren't visible to the naked eye. And, and all oh, I see, because it's really, it's truly probably microscopic when they send it to you. Yeah, well, and then some you'll see it starting to grow. Um, so you take this this seed string and you wrap it wrap it around your long line and uh, and secure it and and um, and wait for it to grow and, and then make you sure back and. And wait, what, six months? Yeah, outplanting ideally for me is, is a, you know, the week leading up to Thanksgiving. Okay. And uh, you start harvesting, really, you start harvesting in April. Okay. Um, finishing up in late May for the most part. Uh-huh. And it's one season. It's like, that's it. It takes six months. You can't, like, start another crop in May and then harvest that in November. Is that right? It's a one-shot deal. Correct, correct. Yeah, so sugar kelp is only grown in the winter um, because you know it will still it'll grow all year round and we, we see it all year round. But in the winter, there's uh, none of the organisms that are around in the warmer seasons attack it. And, and so that's, that's why it's important for it to be the winter. In Connecticut, the only the only seaweed that we are allowed to grow is sugar kelp. So at this point, there's there's an off season with seaweed cultivation, and you know, and if we get to the point where where cultivating, um, you know, dulse would be uh, would be a good one to add, or um, or another another local seaweed, then um, then we. Then we might be able to, you know, alternate the crop as the as the calendar progresses. Right. Although it's very convenient that your harvest time coincides basically with the opening of the fishing season, right? Because that's somewhere around March, April. And so, and because one of the, I I talked to these after we talk about this, we're gonna take a short break. But um, I interviewed a couple of fishermen last week, actually. And they they were they like were very disparate. They were saying, well, you know, these windmills going in are going to wreck the fishing. This industrial fish, you know, aquaculture, fin fish like salmon in wild in open water, which I'm very much against. Um, but that's obviously coming. And then they they mentioned industrial kelp farming. And I'm wondering, is that different from what you're doing? Is that something else, or are they just not really understanding? that your season is over when their season begins. Like why would he, why would they object to, you know, large scale kelp farming? I was curious about that. All right. So I have to say that it's the first time I've ever, I've ever heard of, of an objection like that. I know. Right. So we've heard of objections in the past where, where particularly, you know, uh, shoreline homeowners would be concerned about what the aesthetics would look like. Yeah, um, and that and that was easy to easy to um, alleviate because everything is happening below the surface of the water. You only see you only see some booties on the top of the water. Um, as far as as far as those comments from the fishermen, I mean, one, I would um, 
I just have to say, it doesn't sound like they, uh, you know, I know a lot uh, about it. Doesn't sound like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Okay. And and uh, and and industri- and the and and the words strung together, industrial kelp farming. That's also the first time I've heard those together because it's, it's hardly, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I, I think um, all I could imagine is, you know, I hear their concerns on, you know, on, on fish, fin fish farms and, and, and I share many of those concerns and probably many of the concerns you have. Um, windmills, I, I, you know, not a big expert on that. Uh, but as far as, you know, kelp farming presenting issues to anybody would uh you know i mean i i just can't imagine what they're talking about the you know one thing about kelp and about kelp farms is that you're creating a much healthier water column yeah so so you end up you end up giving fish more to eat and you give you know the the stuff fish eat more to eat and uh and you're also removing nitrogen and carbon from the water so Near near our farms, you'll see an increase in in different in different species. You'll see more fish hanging around. You'll see um, you'll see more lobsters. You'll you know it, it ends up it ends up having a really positive effect. I, I mean, I guess I could see a concern if they're if they're using nets or something, and you know they you know and they have to go around a kelp farm or something. Maybe um, that's what he was talking about. Let's take a short break because I want to talk, come back and talk more thoroughly about the environmental benefits of kelp farming kelp. Um, and then we'll keep talking about the regulatory and processing and stuff. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Jonathan McGee from uh, Sugar Kelp Farm Cooperative in New England. Um, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. The area is well-known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN's series Hardcore. There is something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. The second season of Hardcore is out now. You can learn all about apples and fermentation and dive into how cider makers and their communities are working to create an equitable industry and one that is resilient to climate change. Listen to Hardcore on your favorite podcast app. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. Thanks to HRN, I ventured into the world of cooking with sumac, and I have not looked back since. I was listening to A Taste of the Past with my mom, and there was an episode about the history of American food. It inspired me to make it the subject of my final social studies project, and I ended up getting an A. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. So anyway, we were talking about the environmental benefits of farming kelp, and you mentioned that it increases the habitat for fish 
and for fish breeding, right? And it's, uh, you know, adds, uh, it, uh, take, it's, well, one thing is it sequesters carbon, right? Correct. So, and on the GreenWave site, they were, they were saying kelp cultivation is a tool to sequester carbon, but how do they measure that? Or, so, or something I read. And, and I'm going to ask you that too, because I know that this is also an issue when it comes to sequestering carbon off of farms. Like everybody talks about how great it's going to be when farmers can get paid for the carbon that they sequester, but nobody has really come up, as I understand it, and I, you know, somebody out there can prove me wrong, but I am not aware that there is a reliable tool to actually make those measurements and measurements that are reliable enough that one can then uh, extrapolate a value, a monetary value that could be paid to a kelp, fresh, kelp farmer as it would be paid to a terrestrial farmer. So I wondered if you could comment on that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a, it's a great topic and it's, and it's very important, obviously, for, you know, for stakeholders everywhere. It's important for the environment, it's important for the farmers. And so there are sort of two areas that I look at with this. It's, it's you know the way you you can measure it, the way you could quantify how much carbon is coming in, and then the second one is um, how is basically um, I guess government agreement on on um, on what on what that means, you know what it means to the to the uh, to pulling the carbon out and and what happens if you change the kelp or or the product and you know are you then releasing some of the carbon back right so on the first on the first part there's there's been a lot of work and there is a ton of work going on right now to be able to quantify how much kelp is being is being sequestered we're definitely getting there um, this year for the first time. Um, even though it's not an exact science yet, uh, GreenWave actually paid farmers um, uh, for for exactly that, basically for carbon credits. Um, you know, it, it's you know not to the not to the extent uh, financially that it that it will be, but what they did basically, and and I didn't get this from them, I just surmised it myself. They basically said, listen, we know it's doing it. Um, we know um, we know we'll get there with with all the measurement tools and everything, um, and that'll be very important. Right now, these farmers need some extra extra help, you know, keeping afloat so we can keep all of this going and all the values that it has. So they did um, so they did pay farmers this year um, for sequestering carbon. The the other part that's that's tricky, as I understand it, is is what does it mean to sequester carbon? So if you could if you could measure how much carbon has been sequestered in say one blade of kelp, you have a you have a number. But then what happens if if that kelp is then you know is then you know put somewhere else or in another form where it's utilized and then arguably the carbon or some of the carbon is no longer sequestered. Right. And so that's so that's something that's being tackled right now too. There's you know there's an effort uh, there's an effort in northern New England right now where uh, a program where these folks and this is very cool these folks are going far offshore cultivating large amounts of kelp 
for the sole purpose of just dropping it to the bottom of the ocean after really? it's grown. And the reason for that is it's at a depth, it's at a depth uh, which will keep it from breaking down and, and arguably releasing the carbon. So they're sequestering the carbon, dropping it down to the bottom of the seafloor in an area where it will remain that way. Uh -huh. and, and so that's, you know, one of the short term and maybe short and long term uh, answers to that question. But those are those are the two things. I mean, just overall, we are getting there and it's exciting. Obviously, when we get there, it'll be really exciting. Right, right. What about like processing? I mean, we mentioned you just mentioned that, like, how much carbon are you releasing when you process kelp? First of all, what kind of infrastructure? Most kelp is sold, as, as I understand it, most kelp is sold fresh as a fresh product or maybe blanched. Um, but as far as like drying it, powdering it, uh, turning it into some other application, how much infrastructure exists for that? And uh, is that like one of the bigger hurdles to becoming, say, a large scale kelp farmer? That is one of the biggest hurdles, yes. It's a big hurdle in Southern New England. It's a big hurdle everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is and that's one of the one of the reasons why my partner and I created the Sugar Kelp Cooperative was to be able to tackle that collectively and and uh, and you know and to lead that charge. Right. So so yeah, there's not there's not much existing infrastructure. Um, we we do have uh, we do have some processing equipment right now for you know for limited scale and uh, and certainly we are we are making plans to be able to expand uh, but yeah the infrastructure has has been a big challenge and then it's you know and part of it is you know where is the market going what kind of infrastructure is needed for this for the for the products that the market is looking for so we sell fresh you know, you know, untouched, you know, unprocessed kelp uh, for for a short window of time uh, during the harvest season. So, say, you know, April, April and May, we're able to able to to provide you know fresh kelp. Um, but after that, it'll it'll be processed in some way or another. And whether that's simply whether it's simply um, uh, frozen. Just to just to maintain its its shelf life, uh, or if it's put into a powder and put into another product uh, it, that becomes an ingredient in um, you know in you know in, in a soup or something like that. Um, so that's one of the that's one of the areas that that will be that you know that we're learning as we go and as the market grows is you know where to invest. The processing dollars. Uh, you know, are you doing it in drying equipment? Are you doing it in flash freezing? Are you, you know, are you doing it in, 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 you know, filling equipment? You know, you know, what's what are the best solutions? Sure. So well, let's. I mean, are, I, I wonder how much Americans are ready to embrace kelp as a food source. Like you're selling it primarily into restaurants, right? And you know, it's great when you have a fabulous chef who's able to, you know, turn it into something dazzling. But for the average American, um, you know, who maybe isn't familiar with eat or doesn't want to eat sushi, you know, isn't familiar with eating seaweed as a delicious, healthy snack, 
or addition to your you know dinner table um how are we going to sell them? how are how are you jonathan mr marketing packaging man uh, how are, <laughs> what is your vision for getting americans to recognize that this is a great food source and that it should be um and then i want to talk also about other added value products that can be made with kelp but let's start with you know changing american tastes yeah so you know you know when i first started my farm and i and i you know first first <laughs> brought a crop about and i you know said okay this is all going perfectly and um and okay all right everybody buy the kelp and right. you know and it's just crickets so <laughs> so the so to answer the question about are americans ready for it the my answer would be they're either they're either excited for it at this point or they or they haven't been introduced to it yet and of course there's going to be a, a percentage that will fall out of that but i think you know that is that is where most people are and and i say that because you know from the marketing aspect the sugar kelp cooperative um created a a a project which turned out to be very successful and now it's now it's a it's an annual event and it's called the new england kelp harvest week right and, and it's just and it's you know essentially a restaurant week uh about a week and a half really where the restaurants are are utilizing fresh local sugar kelp and putting that into different dishes that you know that they're introducing to all of their customers and you know we came up with that we knew it would work we've seen other people do some similar things and obviously you know we've seen you know restaurants are such a great way to promote things sure um so you know we we our first one was was in 2021 um early spring of 2021 and um and the you know we had uh we had some really good success we had you know 40 something uh restaurants uh, restaurants slash um you know markets slash uh, breweries that participated and uh and you know they they were able to you know roll it out to their customers and the response was was really positive great and then we did it this this year um it was that much easier to get to get the you know the, the restaurants that had been at that were involved the first year, um, almost all of them were involved this this past year as well, or this year rather. Um, getting new restaurants to come on was was that much easier than it was the previous year. Sure. And and uh, and then the you know and then just you know the effect that that is having on you know getting out to the market. Um, you know just you know you know all the, you know just so families are are learning about it and and. You know, and 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 we see it in just you know just you know social media activity, and you know, and there are definitely you know quantifiable market trends, and you know, we come up with some fancy graphs once in a while, you know, based <laughs> on what we've seen. Uh, but it's but it's you know it's working, it's getting there, and and I say that people are either excited or enthusiastic about it, or they haven't been introduced to it yet because because. The, there is there is excitement to it because once somebody somebody you know eats it or has it as part of a drink or something and, and they say wow this is actually really good I had no idea um, so then it's so then it's something they're interested in eating 
and they they probably have an idea um, that it's very healthy, and then you learn more about the the nutritional values, and you say, okay, this stuff is amazing; it truly is. And then you and then you you let people know what the environmental benefits are to sugar kelp, and 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 those are significant. You know, so sugar kelp is a, is a regenerative crop, right? So so it grows without the need for you know arable land, fresh water. That's Fertilizer. a squeaky that's a squeaky chair, by the way, that I'm on right now. That's all right. All right, just want to make that very clear. So um, requires no fertilizer, no you know pesticides, herbicides, you know whatever. I mean, um, it's all it needs to grow is the water that it's in and the sun that's coming down. That is it. And and in the process of growing, like we touched on earlier, it's sequestering carbon. It's pulling nitrogen out of the water. And and we all and you know as a, as a as a you know species, we talk about carbon all the time as we should. Um, nitrogen in the in the water columns is a massive massive issue, and sure. that that leads to ocean acidification and you know leads to dead zones and, and yeah, all those right. good eutrophication deprives all the oxygen out of the thing. Let me ask you this because we don't have too much time left, Jonathan, and I just want people to understand aside from the nutritive values because it truly is a superfood and the obvious environmental benefits. There are a lot of other applications for kelp. Like I, as a, somebody who follows the livestock industry regularly and for a decade now, um, I know that there's been a lot of talk about incorporating uh, seaweed into, you know, cattle feed uh, because it reduces their emissions, their gas emissions. They quit farting as much. I mean, are there other, like, is that, is that for example, is that being embraced by uh, livestock producers that, oh, wow, here is a way that we can like both uh, maybe reduce our feed costs and also provide an environmental benefit. Like, is there any talk of that kind of thing? And, and or is it also something that could be like mushrooms converted into packaging uh, that is more, um, you know, user or environmentally friendly or pharmaceutical products because of uh, its high nutritional values? What, I, you know, I'm just trying to get at some of the other applications for this product. Yeah, yeah. So yes to all of the above. Right. Yes okay. to all of the above. And and the you know, the studies that have that have taken place with with um livestock feed fortified with kelp have been really encouraging. And um and and you know, that's something where it, so basically the studies are showing that if cattle is fed with um with kelp or kelp fortified feed, that their methane emissions are reduced by. There's one study that had it at ninety percent. Come on! But it's always in like the seventy percent and north area. So, right. I, which you know, I mean, I, you know, I I think there's a good argument to be made for, for you know, being, you know, picking and choosing spots to eat beef partially because it it does have a massive footprint. Um, you know, it has a massive carbon footprint, you know, and, and there sure. are a lot of environmental concerns. And, and the biggest, or I, I would say the biggest, uh, I'm not an expert, but it is the methane emission. And if you could if you cut that by 75%, I mean, I'm probably going to eat another steak or two. Yeah, right. I mean, I would be marketing this so hard to uh, livestock feed companies 
you know, that well, produce, uh, you know, all the basically the pharmaceuticals that livestock get uh, when they're in the feedlot. I mean, <laughs> well, and, and, and what I could tell you, and, and so as far as my interactions with, you know, staying on the on the kelp for uh, livestock feed, my interactions with with the large, the large, you know, you know, large, you know, national houses that, you know, produce beef are um, are non-existent. Uh, but I, but the conversations I've had with with local local beef farmers um, is is very positive, and, and they are all over it. And and uh, and I point that out because there's you know there's a there are a lot of there's a lot of switching to um, to eating eating locally cultivated foods. Sure, it's what it's one of the and and that's an example of one of the one of the reasons it it's very helpful. So when you do come up with something, um, you could start implementing it much faster. True. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to off, off the, the show, I'm going to look into some of these various companies that I'm familiar with and see if they have thought about this or are they getting educated? I mean, I would even get into like university extension schools and, and uh, you know, co-ops uh, farm co-ops to say like, hey, you guys, here's a low cost additive to your feed that could have a huge impact. Plus, what about the nutritional benefits? It's not like it's only people who absorb minerals and so on from kelp. It's it's animals too, right? I mean, to oh, hundred percent. And and I and right now, you know, you know, on a large scale, my understanding is is um, you know just running the tests and and capturing all the all the data. But I do know, you know, um, for example, UConn and and Penn State have a collaborative study going on um, to, you know, for exactly this. And and there and there are a lot of entities that are that are diving into this because it is, you know, the potential is is so huge. I mean, drop the methane emissions by a significant amount while utilizing a regenerative crop. I mean, there's just so many winners lined up in that. Absolutely. The the winners winners that don't include some of the some of the big agra that's responsible yeah. for supplying them food right now. Right, um, right. Well, once they figure it out, believe me, they'll be hiring you to grow their kelp for them. They are not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna wrap it up there, Jonathan. Thank you so much for this. Um, the tagline for your uh, organization is "Let's eat like gods and goddesses." People, check out New England. What is it? Tell it again. What is it? The New England Kelp. So it's it, it, yeah, and the website is newenglandkelp.com. Yeah, so check that out and uh, and um, yeah, and and what I will say, just jumping really quick, we have a lot of new things happening the second half of this year. Great. 2023 is going to be a transformative year for us. I would, and anybody who's interested in keeping tabs on it, just go to our website, newenglandkelp.com, and just um, just just sign up for uh, for the newsletter, and we'll great. keep everybody posted. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. It's been great talking to you again, Jonathan. I enjoy it so much. You as well, Katie. A pleasure. Thank you, folks, for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Uh, have a great week. And thanks to our sponsors, as always, for supporting the show and all the shows on Heritage Radio Network. So long for now.
What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.